Well, good morning and welcome one more time <clears throat> to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I am the teaching elder here at Grace. Uh, you picked a great day to be here if this is your first day ever. We have potluck. You probably know that by now. You may have smelled some of the foods cooking after the service. I don't generally encourage texting during the service, but if you've got lunch plans, you may want to go ahead and get your phone out and blow them off right now. Just say, no, can't make it. Won't be there. Something's come up. I'm not going to be able to make it. We have great cooks with some really creative dishes, so everyone who is here, if you might have at the last minute decided, well, I think I'll check out this Grace Community Church. Just hang around for potluck. We would love to have you. As good as the food is going to be this morning, it will not be the potluck highlight. The real blessing of the meal is going to develop as we share with one another, interact with one another over the meal. Um, how often do you make appointments with other friends when some kind of food is not involved? You know, it's like, hey, let's get together in the middle of the afternoon. Oh, what, for coffee? No, just to hang out. It's like, what? No, we, gotta get, we have to have something to drink or something to eat going on. It's usually when we commune with one another, when we connect and commune, it's over a meal. You know, it seems like every single time that you turn the page in the Bible, God is calling for a feast or someone to kill the, someone saying, kill the fatted calf. We've got guests, unexpected guests, guests, and we need to put on a big, big spread for them. Uh, the Hunziekers have been staying with us this week, and, and the best times are the meal times. That's when we're all together, we're, we're laughing, there's just a lot going on over food. Uh, if you think that it's great to have an Italian cook in your home, it is. Just imagine cooking for the Italian cook. That's not so fun, you know. And, and uh, so Matias constantly say, takes a look at something that I prepared or Allison's prepared, and he says, I'll have some cereal, I think. I'll just kidding, kidding. They're very healthy eaters, let's just say that. And they're very skinny. I hate them all. No, I'm just, no, 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 no. Just, just kidding. I love them very much. Uh, all community, the importance of community. Some of you, those of you who are here, your first year at school, Maybe it's, you're, you're just back from the summer. You've already, and you're a long way from home, you've already planned your first trip home at Thanksgiving, right? Everybody is going to get together and have an incredible meal at Thanksgiving. The entire family comes together for a feast. And there will be a lot of people, you know, who will look at, at, at what is considered to be excess at Thanksgiving. But once again, that you see this. Over and over in Scripture, God affirming people getting together with a feast and a heart full of gratitude. The greatest blessing is going to be at Thanksgiving, though, once again, being just being together as a family. Look, if you had to choose all the family being there for an ordinary meal or just half the family being there for an incredible meal, you're going to be a family. I don't, you know, of course, if you could choose which half would be there, you, could, you might go... You might go with that one. This morning at Grace marks the 
very last Sunday in a year's worth of sermons from the book of Hebrews. A, a, a sermon that was form uh, to a group of mid-century Jewish believers in a dwindling house church. This was a church that had been packed like this one. And then gradually got down, a lot of scholars think somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 or 20 people. I mean, it was just a small group. That's one of the things that always stuns me, that Hebrews was written to a church that's just about die of about 15 people. A magnificent book, and as I've said over and over in this study, probably the book that helps us understand how Scripture works more than the book in, in all the Bible. It just puts all the pieces together, as complicated and as simple as it is, all at the same most likely this church was in Rome. We can't know that for sure. But most likely it was in Rome. Uh, and, and these believers were facing imminent and significant, severe persecution. Now look, we all know what it was like in Rome in the first century. And so I've been on the back uh, street tour with the Hunzikers in Rome. We've been to some of the churches where we, we've been to St. John's where we saw people crawling up the steps just like Martin Luther did. I took a bunch of pictures and I was surprised I could get away with that. But, but Joe says, in, in, on holy days, the line is down the street several blocks because if you can go up those steps on that day, you get to avoid purgatory altogether. See, horrible, horrible persecution there was in the Overnight, you'd be dragged out of your home at night. A quick trial, just like Jesus' trial the next day. You're crucified, maybe covered in pitch, and, and they light you on fire and say, Light of the world, light the way to, for us on the way to the Colosseum where we can see more Christians thrown to wild dogs. And of course, they throw the children first. I mean, it, it was a horrible day. And these guys were thinking about walking away from Jesus. I'm not going to abandon God. I'm going to... I'm going to chill on the Jesus stuff, though. I'm going to stay spiritual, but not imminent, severe persecution these guys were facing. And he was saying how important church community is. I was amazed when we came to Hebrews 10, that verse that all pastors use, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. As you see the day approaching, you need to encourage one another. And I've always just read that like most Americans would read it. It's not a good thing to miss church because it'll hurt your Christian life. But what he was saying was, it's not a good thing to miss church because you hurt your brothers and sisters. You're being selfish, staying home, not going to church. So you can imagine how important community is in in a time of persecution, of course, when you're gathered together, you're more likely to get in trouble, but you can't exist without other believers. That's one of the focuses of the book of Hebrews. So here we are at the very end, and you may think that coming on the very last Sunday of a series is a bad time to show up, but I think you're going to find it. How very much the text today relates to you in the present. In just a moment, we're going to stand and read Hebrews 13, verses 20 to 25. This is week two uh, of a sermon titled, Begin with the End in Mind. Uh, and then, by way of review of the book of Hebrews, we're going to watch a video from the Bible Project. 
It's connected with the Gospel Coalition. Um, those of you who were here in January after the Advent season was over showed this video kind of as a review. You're not going to mind seeing it again. Everybody was just blown away with how helpful it was. For those of you who have not been coming, hopefully this will whet your appetite uh, to study the book of Hebrews. And then after the video, I'm going to uh, provide, seek to provide some structure for soaking in the blessings of God that are in this scripture, in this beautiful benediction, this breathtakingly beautiful benediction. Uh, then there's also a word of greeting at the end of the letter. So I think you're going to see why it's appropriate for Joe Hunziker. It's really Hunziker, but you're going to say Hunziker, so I may as well uh, say Hunziker. Uh, but you are going to see why it's appropriate for Joe to read our text this morning. I'll ask you to stand, as is our custom, at grace when the word is being read. And Joe is going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Now the God of peace who brought again from the death our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equipped with equipped you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Amen. Father, um, we indeed yield our hearts to you. We recognize that everything good that we have comes from your hands. It's a good thing that you have brought the Hunzikers to be with us for these 10 months. It is a good thing that you revealed yourself to us and that, Lord, we know because of Jesus um, how to relate to you. We know that we have eternal life in him. Father, uh, use us and guide us and strengthen us and speak to our hearts from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. The letter to the Hebrews. The author of this letter is anonymous, and people have wondered for a long time whether Paul wrote it or maybe one of his co-workers like Barnabas or Apollos, but really we just don't know. In chapter 2, we discover that the author had a first-hand relationship with the disciples who were themselves around Jesus, so we know that this letter is anchored in the teaching of the apostles. We also don't know who the audience of this letter was or even where they lived. The author knows them really well, and he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the storyline of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, about how Abraham's family became the nation of Israel, about how Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they received 
received the Torah and they made a covenant with God where they built the tabernacle, where the priests offered sacrifices, and also about how they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The author just expects that the readers know all of the details about these stories. And so most likely the audience is made up of Jewish Christians. That's where the name of the letter comes from. We also have clues from chapter 10 that this church community was facing persecution and even imprisonment because of their association with Jesus. Some in the community were walking away from Jesus and abandoning the faith altogether. And this explains the purpose and the structure of this letter. First, there's a short introduction, which is followed by four sections where the author compares and contrasts Jesus with key people and events from Israel's history. Jesus is first compared with angels in the Torah, second with Moses and the Promised Land, third with priests and Melchizedek, and lastly with the sacrifices and the covenant. And the author has two main goals in all of these contrasts. The first goal is to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else, showing that Jesus is worthy of all their trust and devotion. But his second goal is this, it's to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So in every section, he includes a strong warning not to abandon Jesus. So let's dive in now and see how this all unfolds. The elevation of Jesus begins in the opening sentence of the introduction. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So the author's saying that Jesus is superior to all of the previous ways that God has revealed himself to Israel. He then makes this astounding claim that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. These metaphors are making the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. So Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or Jesus is what the wax impression is to the signet ring. For this author, there is no God apart from Jesus. Jesus is God become human as the sun. And it's this elevated view of Jesus that's then explored throughout the rest of the letter. In the first section, the author compares Jesus with angels, which might strike you as kind of odd, like why angels? In Jewish tradition, it was taught, based on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that the Torah and the words of God were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai by angels. And so by saying that Jesus is superior to angels, the author is claiming that Jesus and his message of good news are superior to all previous messengers of God's word. And so the first warning flows from this very point. If Israel was called to pay attention to the Torah that was delivered by angels, how much more should we pay attention to the message that was announced by the Son of God? And not only that, given Jesus' status high above the angels, how remarkable is it that he gave up that high status to become human, to suffer, and to die? In Jesus, we see God's greatest glory and God's great humility as Jesus sympathetically joined himself to humanity's tragic fate. In chapters 3 and 4, the author moves on to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses, who led the people of Israel through the wilderness and built the tabernacle. Jesus is also the leader of God's people, but in him we see not the builder of just a tent, but of all creation. Then the author retells the story of how the Israelites rebelled against Moses in the wilderness, and they lost their chance to enter into the rest that God offered them in the promised land. And so here comes the second warning. If Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes if we rebel against him? 
We also are in a wilderness-like environment where we have to trust God for the future rest in God's new creation. So let's make sure that we don't rebel like Israel did in the wilderness and lose out on God's gracious offer to enter his new creation. In chapters 5 through 7, the author then compares Jesus with Israel's priests that come from the line of Aaron. Their role was to represent Israel before God and to offer sacrifices that atoned for or covered over the sins of the people. But, he points out, the priests were themselves morally flawed people, and so they constantly had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for everybody else's. Something more was needed. And so he then argues that Jesus was that something more. He's the ultimate priest. But Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. Rather, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, that mysterious priest king from ancient Jerusalem, and he appears in the stories about Abraham. We also find in Psalm 110 that the messianic king from the line of David will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the author's whole point is this. Jesus is the ultimate priest king. He's morally flawless. He's eternally available for his people. And so he's superior to any other mediator between God and humans. And thus comes his warning in this section. To reject Jesus is to reject one's best and only chance to be fully reconciled to God. So don't do that. Which transitions us into the last comparison in chapters 8 through 10. The author shows how Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice superior to all the animal sacrifices offered in the temple. Those sacrifices had to be offered constantly, both daily but also yearly on the Day of Atonement. Jesus offered his life once and for all, and it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And so the author warns the audience from walking away from Jesus. It's like turning your back on a gracious offer of God's forgiveness. Why would you do that? Jesus' sacrifice is permanent, he says, and it's the foundation for the new covenant spoken of in the prophets where all sins are forgiven. So now that the author has elevated Jesus through all of these contrasts, this final section is one big challenge to follow Jesus. So think big picture. In Jesus, they have found God's very word. In Jesus, they have hope for the new creation. Jesus is their eternal priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so now they should follow all the great models of faith found throughout the story of the scriptures, and they should remain faithful to Jesus, trusting that despite whatever hardship and persecution, God will not abandon his people. That's the basic flow of thought throughout the letter, which the author calls right here at the very end, a brief word of exhortation. Here's a couple of extra tips for reading this letter. Whenever the author quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, which is like every other sentence, stop and go look up the reference and read that quotation in its original context. And sometimes you'll be puzzled, but more often you'll see all kinds of extra cool connections that you would never notice otherwise. It's totally worth the effort. You should also just know that these warning passages, they're going to make you uncomfortable, and that's kind of the point. They're not there to make you afraid. They're there to show you that rejecting Jesus is foolish because he's so awesome. These warnings all serve the larger purpose of the letter, to show that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy. And that's what the letter of the Hebrews is all about. And that is what we have been learning in Hebrews. And I'm sure that if you've not been here for this series, you now know exactly what we have been going through. I was trying to look at that in light of someone who has not read the book of Hebrews uh, and thinking 
even still, there's so much more to understand and know about it than even that little overview. It might not give you a sense at a certain point. You could say, uh, I don't get it. I'm just out. But go back. If you're, if you're interested, we've got all the sermons from the book of Hebrews uh, on our website. Uh, you can go to the sermons in the series, and, and they're all there in written form as well as audio, so you can go through a lot quicker. Jointhebibleproject.com. You can find a whole lot more of these uh, videos on different books of the Bible, different themes that we find in the Bible. So <clears throat> this morning, <clears throat> we're looking at the benediction, the great benediction in Hebrews. New Testament benedictions are blessings, a summary of all that has been said to that point in the letter. Usually they're found at the end of the book. Sometimes they're found uh, a little earlier in the book when a, when a whole big section is being summarized and then they move on to another part. Uh, but the benediction, uh, in addition to summarizing and giving a blessing to the people, often uh, includes a word of, of, of great encouragement to look to the one who gives life. And there may be a challenge, as is the case in ours today, to trust and live for the Lord. So Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Once again, um, th the title of the message is Begin with the End in Mind. If you're just starting school, if you're just starting another year of school, or, or no matter what you're doing in your life, it's always best to recognize that there's more to life than what is just in front of our faces. It, it, the total of our lives, the total sum of our lives is not what happens between now and when we die. We will stand before the Lord, every one of us, and give an account of our lives. The beauty of standing there in Jesus is that Jesus covers all of the bad stuff. And he says, he belongs to me. And when God looks at us, and this is true of your life now, you may think what a horrible person you are. If you trust Christ, and this is not a, a, a plug for living any way you want to and just say you believe in Jesus. But if you truly believe in Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus and he's pleased. When you stand before the Lord, stand there beside Jesus, this benediction reminds us that it is a blessing to live for the one who has made eternal life possible. So the structure for applying this text to our lives is, is given in three points. Uh, trust the one who is both the source and the giver of peace. Talked about this this past week. Rest in God's covenant with you. God's covenant promises to you through Jesus, <laughs> believe that it is God who empowers you to do His will. So last week we talked about God being the one without whom there is no peace possible. He is the source and the giver of peace. When we think, I need to calm myself. Some of you are athletes and you try to calm yourself before a game. That's, that's a good thing. We can do that in certain situations. Take a deep breath 
You know, if you're really angry about something, take a deep breath. Count to ten before. Calm yourself. But you, there is no lasting peace unless the Lord gives you peace. That's what we talked about last week. This morning, we'll think about God's covenant with us through the blood of Jesus and the power that He gives us to do His will. You see, in all three points, the key for us, He's the active agent in our relationship with Him. Our our job is to trust, to rest, to believe. So, let's think briefly about God's covenant with His people. In our world, most of us assume that if we work hard and if we get a few breaks to come our way here or there, then we will reap the benefits of our labor. In this great benediction to the Hebrews, we're reminded of one of the main points that keeps coming back to us through the entire sermon. Anything good in our lives comes from the hand of the Lord. The Father was the one who raised up Jesus from the dead. And His resurrection assures us that one day we will have resurrected bodies that are no longer subject to the ills of this world, that are no longer subject to persecution by those who hate the Lord. Uh, No deficiencies whatsoever. That's what our hope is. In the New Testament, anytime you see the word hope, think eternal life. Don't think... I'll get a, get a better job, I'll get a nicer home. She'll say yes when I ask her, even though I just met her last week. Don't think those things. That, that's not the kind of hope he's talking about. He's talking about eternal life with God, which is why the gospel appeals to the poor who have so little in this life. And, and here's hope being offered. And people say yes to Jesus And then you start living according to biblical principles and success follows that. And then, of course, pride follows success. And it's like, look at what I've done. We have done nothing good in our lives apart from God's goodness to us. And there is no hope for us apart from Christ. It may be that in spite of all of this hubris that we Americans tend to exhibit all the time, It may be that there's something wrong with your body or your relationships or your status in life that keeps you from thinking, wow, there's just not much here. That's okay. One day it's going to all be done. The hard times will be done. Why? Because you've been good enough? Because you've worked for this? You've earned this? Once again, no. None of the above. Not even... Life has been hard. You deserve a break. That's not why we stand before God. Our hope is in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus' blood being shed for our sins and in His resurrection from the dead. God's covenant promises with you are not based on what you have done for Him, but about what, rather, He has done for you. Jesus has done on your behalf. Your part is to trust to rest and believe. Notice where we're told that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Now look, we assume that a shepherd is going to be the shepherd of many sheep. In English, sheep is both singular and plural, but in Greek, there is a distinction, and the distinction or, or, or the word is the plural form of 
the Greek word for sheep. So Jesus is the shepherd of a community of people. You would expect that, but the significance to us is that Hebrews was written to a church. It was not written to a neighborhood Bible study. I hear people say a lot of times, oh, I go to two or three churches. That way I get the best of everything. That's very consumer attitudes, isn't it, about church. Grace Community Church may not be the place where you land. I'm glad you're here today. Help us eat this food. It would be miserable if we had a lot of leftover food. So go back for seconds and thirds. I'm glad you're here, but, but look, this may not be where you land, but by all means, find a church where you're going to serve and be served by others. Resist the temptation to go to a church and just show up on Sunday morning and, and, and that's where you are. Look, after you've been here a little while, ask about youth ministry and children's ministry and and greeting and home groups. Let's, we'll talk about home groups in two weeks and how important they are to the body life here at Grace Community Church. Get involved. Know, know people and be known by people. And by, by the way, can I just say to those of you who are regular here at Grace, if anybody leaves today and decides not to come back, please don't let it be because no one spoke with them. Find somebody that you don't know after the service and just talk to them and say, so glad that you are here today. We would love for you uh, to be a part of our body if that's where the Lord leads you. So resist the temptation to simply attend on Sunday mornings, even if you go to the same church every Sunday. Get involved with the covenant family of God that unites around Jesus. If you're a college student and you didn't pick up a copy of the article, Why You Need a Church, Not Just a Campus Ministry, on the way in, please get one on the way out on the table in the foyer just outside of those doors. Look, this article is absolutely not anti-campus ministry. We have campus ministries in our body today. We have people who are here today leading campus ministries. That is not in any way negative towards that. It is, though, saying you need more than that. You need to be in church where you're going to take communion. You need to be in church where you're going to serve with the body of Christ. And, and frankly, my desire for you students is this, that when you leave Campbell or wherever you're going to school, some of you are in other schools, wherever you're going to school, when you leave and you go and connect with another church, it's going to be just natural for you to begin to, to serve. You already know what it's like to to be a part of a body and you're not intimidated and, go, and you're going to places. And I can tell you, most places you go to are not going to be near as friendly as Grace Community Church, even if nobody speaks to you today. <laughs> We're friendly. I promise we are. We're friendly. And if you don't like, well, no, no, no. But you need to know how to, how to just plug in and be connected in church. So by all means, get involved in a campus ministry. That is huge for you. It truly is. But be in church on Sunday and be in church at other times too when other stuff is going on. Get connected with a covenant family that believes all that the Bible says about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. By the way, look for that with campus ministries too. People who are not watering down 
what Scripture says. There are a lot of things that Scripture says that people say, well, that's not what it means, it's cultural. And a lot of those things aren't cultural. And we're more and more against the grain. You need to be connected with people. If you believe, if you believe, this is God's Word. If you don't, I hope you'll at least explore and see what, what, what you conclude. If you believe it's Scripture, though, there's a lot in here that's not going to be popular. In school, at work, anywhere else, you need to be connected with people who believe it all the way. A gospel-practicing church that is not ashamed to call Jesus Lord and Savior, the only hope for sinners. And look, if you're truly a part of a family, you're not going to be that concerned about other people thinking that your family is crazy. I mean, look, everybody's family is crazy anyway, right? That's what Jeff Foxworthy said. But look, you're not gonna, you're not gonna think that you're not gonna worry when people say, that church, they're crazy over there. They're your family. And so it's okay. You can be crazy right along with them. But just be in a family. Settle somewhere, and when you do, put down roots. Well, with all the talk about what Jesus has done for us, you might get the impression that how we live doesn't matter that much. But the benediction at the end of Hebrews issues a challenge as well as a blessing. Even as the expectation for good works is articulated, it is based on what God will do for us, which is why the last point of this, this these point, the last point is stated, believe that it is God's will or God who empowers you to do His will. So let me try that again. Believe that it is God who empowers you to do His will. It's one of the great mysteries of faith to believe that it is God who is actually working in you to accomplish the good works that He has designed for you to do. A lot of us think, okay, Jesus saved me. I recognize there's nothing I can do about that. Now it's up to me. And I've got this, Lord. No, you don't have it. We don't have it unless Jesus is the one working through us to accomplish God's will. If you follow the Lord for any length of time, chances are pretty good that you're disappointed with your level of commitment to Him. Service for the one who gave everything for you. I mean, you may feel that you're incapable of overcoming the sin that weighs you down that we talked about in Hebrews 12. Or, or that your body renders you incapable of meaningful service. I feel increasingly that way. I'm getting older and tireder. You may feel that your fears or distractions will keep you from doing God's will. But God's will is far more about how you live your life than it is about what you should do, who you should marry, even what job you should take, what school you should go to. God's will is for you to live the life that He has designed. And if you're incapacitated in some way and you have to stay at home all the time, it's still His will for you to lift a thankful heart to Him, not, as we talked about last week, not so much for the, 
for the illness that you have, but that God loves you and He knows you and He calls you by name. And through Christ, you have a hope of eternal life where all of this will be done. And you can pray and serve the Lord in so many ways when it feels like you're useless. If you believe that He is the one who equips and empowers you to live for Him, you'll be shocked at how good works will follow faith. Faith doesn't always follow good works, but good works always follow genuine faith. So the the, the hymn, Trust and Obey, if you trust, you will obey, but if you obey, you might not necessarily trust. That was the Pharisees. They obeyed very well, but they didn't trust They didn't believe. So when we recognize our responsibilities before the Lord, we recognize that He is the one who is doing the good works through us. Well, I used to be a far better servant than I am now. Good news for you. Hebrews remind us that the Christian life is about today, not yesterday. Tomorrow we have hope and eternal life, but today... We live for Him. Furthermore, because Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin, He is able to help us in our weaknesses, in all of our temptations, in all of our desires to look to the world instead of to the Lord for pleasure. Jesus knows all of those temptations, and He's able to help us. Believe that He is the one who will lead you and enable you to do what is pleasing in his sight. So one last time, the benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The sermons uh, last week and today have been, frankly, quite basic, which is incredible when you think about the deep waters of Hebrews in which we have been swimming for this past year. But that's quite an accurate reflection when you think about it. It's, it's just how the gospel works. It's how scripture works. It's very simple when you first believe God created the universe and then Adam Sinned, and I chose along with Adam to sin. And even if I had not, I would have been condemned before I ever chose to sin on the basis of my great, 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 great grandfather, Adam's sin, Adam and Eve, their sin, condemned the entire universe, the entire human race to being separated from God. And unless something is done to change my condition, then I will spend eternity in hell apart from God. But God's love was so great and His desire for me was so great that He sent His Son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life. So all those sacrifices we saw on the screen a while ago and that we've been reading about for a year, all of those sacrifices just covered sins temporarily. But Jesus was the eligible, perfect, eligible sacrifice for sin because He never did sin. Fulfilled every law to the last I being dotted and T being crossed is, is essentially what it means to every jot and tittle. 
Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. And when he died on the cross and God it raised him from the dead, it showed that God accepted his sacrifice. And if I believe in him, if I believe that Jesus died for me, and I won't do that until I first recognize how much of a sinner I am, that I am the kind of sinner God says I am. When I believe that Jesus died in my place, and I say, Lord, my life is yours, not that I'm going to be perfect, but my life is yours, I give myself to you, then I become his child. And truly, I took a long time to say something very simple. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. When I believe him, I am a Christian. That's very simple, but it is profound beyond imagination. If you've been here for this last year where we've seen this complex chiastic structure in the introduction to Hebrews and, and, and inclusios galore all over and, and the 25 million Old Testament references I think there are in Hebrews with Psalm 110 being the primary text for this amazing sermon of Hebrews. And if you've been here as we've studied about the priestly duties prescribed in the Old Testament for those serving the tabernacle and the temple. And if you stayed focused as we talked about Melchizedek, about the full implications in heaven of Jesus' blood sacrifice on earth and how faith in Hebrews 11 is about so much more than just seeing what the characters did and taking our cues from them because they were fallen people just like you and I. And God, again, is the author and the agent of faith, the active agent in their lives. If you've seen all of that, then you will understand that the gospel, while very simple, is profoundly deep as well. You will, you will never learn everything there is to know. One of the things, one of the primary reasons that the Hunziker's are here, this is going to be like a year of seminary for Joe. So be praying. That, that kind of training is not readily available in Italy. Be praying. And you, can, you will hear over the coming months how incredibly vital Isola, Camp Isola is to the ministry of the word in Rome where so much is Catholicism and, and legalism and even within the evangelical community, grace is not very, but grace is beginning to spread just like the rays of sunshine from Isola. So I have no idea what I was going to say. I got <laughs> distracted. So, so the gospel, while incredibly simple, is profoundly deep at the same time. And yet, here in this benediction, that was talking about learning the scripture. Here in this benediction, <coughs> we're reminded that no matter how deep we go in Bible study, <coughs> everything in the gospel and the Christian life comes back to the basics. Jesus died for you, therefore live for him. You are not on your own. <laughs> the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, bringing forth the image of Christ in your life <coughs> according to God's plan, the Father's plan. What an incredible God we serve. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. And this would be the time I would say, let's pray. But before we pray, I have to talk just a little bit about what's going to happen. The worship team is going to be coming, um, so pay no attention to them as they come up here. Don't notice what they're wearing, anything about. Um, 
On the last Sunday of the month, we typically take up a benevolence offering. We almost always take up a benevolence offering. And the generosity of your hearts and the ways that you give have allowed us to help people in substantial ways, things that come up that are fully unexpected. And we're able to give pretty decent sums of money, $500, $1,000, not $500,000, but either $500 or $1,000, as the case may be, where there's a need. Some of you will be saying, I have a need. (laughs) But today's offering is entirely for the Hunseekers. We are part of their support team. They've raised support so that they can be here this year. But part of that team, maybe a substantial part of that team while they're here, is going to be us. And it's a privilege to partner with what they are doing in Italy. Also, this morning, um, uh, just about 1 o'clock, is it, Allison? Uh, Tom Ray and Chloe Ray are arriving in Rwanda. Chloe is going to be, for a year, serving at an orphanage in Uganda. Um, And we had plans to talk about that in a week or two, and then I think she got out of the country a little bit early, so we didn't get a chance to pray for her. We want to pray for them, and I do also want to mention that, uh, was it 45 miles, 50 miles from the camp is where the big earthquake was in Italy. And, and it did not do any damage to the structure at Isola, but the campers who were there, summer campers, had to go out in the middle of the night, and they were terrified, as you can imagine, with the shaking all around, and, and, and that, they continued to, to this day, the aftershocks. So we just want to pray for all of them. So... I'm going to pray our ushers will come and we'll take this special offering uh, for the Hoonseekers this morning. And um, we will sing about the wondrous mystery that we have learned about this past year in the book of Hebrews. Father, um, thank you so much for caring about us. And Lord, while many look at us and they shake their heads (laughs) understandably because they don't know you at the level we do we're we're humble we're not proud we're humble we're grateful for calling us into your covenant family this amazing story that we have studied for a year about how it was necessary it was very precise your will We thank you that Jesus died for sinners. And it's not based on what we can do because we can never be good enough and deep down we know it. But it's based on what Jesus did for us. That's the message in Italy. That's the message in Uganda. It's the message to every human being born in this world. Lord, even this fall, we're going to talk about ways that we can get that message to people. Burn it deep into our hearts, the truths that are in our hearts. And then, Lord, as we take this offering, we recognize that this is an offering of partnership in the gospel. We love you, need you, cast all of our hope on you. We pray your great blessings in this offering in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans, written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is really the author of Romans and Hebrews.
Holy Spirit tells us in Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you by the preaching of my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and by the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ and all of God's children said Amen